Hey, Tyler Shields here, pastor of Rock House Baptist Church. I want to personally thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. We pray that the message inspires you, encourages you, and challenges you to be the person that God desires you to be. Be sure to check us out online at rockhousebaptist.org where you can find out more about how to connect, grow, and go. And now, today's message. This morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 11, building off of what Brian talked about last week, which was commitment, and we're going to deal with comfort versus commitment. They tend to be at odds with one another. Comfort versus commitment. Asking questions like, is your comfort more important than your commitment? Or are you willing to be more committed, even if that means it costs you some comfort? Comfort comes in many forms. So, I don't know. I wonder what Jesus would do. We'll talk about that. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 11, if you would. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to talk about some of the others as well. Nehemiah says, Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem, but in the villages of Judah, each lived on his own property in their towns, the Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants, descendants of Solomon's servants. Say that fast. While some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, from here he goes and he gives a really long list of some large, funny-sounding names. It's really a, a historical record and account of all those who actually committed to living in the city, Jerusalem. So I want you to get the picture what, what, why, why this passage is so important. Remember, for, for decades, for, for years and years and years, the city of Jerusalem at this point in history was just a wasteland. It had been destroyed, I mean totally destroyed. And if you remember when Nehemiah came to the city in the early chapters of the book of Nehemiah, he goes out at night and he surveys the damage and all the destruction of the city. And at that point, he rallies the people together and they, they, they unite, they come together in one mind, one accord, man, they're ready to rock and roll and get the work done. They say, we're going to rebuild this city. And over the next several chapters, together, they faced their enemies. They withstood attacks from the outside. They dealt with people talking bad about them and telling lies on them. They faced opposition. They withstood the dissatisfaction and division from the inside. And finally, after 52, man, that must have been some hardworking days, they got the city rebuilt. Now, all that that's complete, guess what? Everybody wants to go home. <laughs> I kind of, when we came back from our big long ride yesterday, and then it was hot, and we were whipped. I know I was. And we got back, and I thought, you know, we got a few more boxes. Maybe everybody want to go out and, and give some around, you know, right here. And when everybody pulled in the parking lot, they, <laughs> poor Tom, he didn't even stop. He drove right up onto his truck. He was re we were tired, man. We were ready to go home because the work was done. <laughs> Just like these people here. So now, 
think about it. Since the city for so long had just been a pile of rubble, there wasn't a lot of people live there. And so now they've got this city. They've, they've built it up. They've got homes to live in. They've got a wall. They've got gates. And they need people to move into this. Can you imagine a, building a city and having nobody that lives in it? They've got this shell. Now they need people to move in, to take care of things, to manage the temple that's there, to guard it. That way their enemies don't come in and just tear it right back down. And you think as many awesome things as they've seen God do over the course of however long this was, and all the work that they put into it, that they just be biting at the bit to move into this brand new city. But they're not. And it makes you wonder why. You'd think they'd have to draw straws to see who got to move into the city. But uh, they have to draw straws or cast lots, the Bible says, to see who has to move in while everybody else gets to go back home. Why? What would keep them from just moving in with all the things that God has done for them? Well, I think it really boils down to this. And that's the fact that it cost us to follow God. You see, they had God's temple in this city, and you would think that God's people would want to move as close to that temple as they could, as close to that wall of the Holy of Holies where the glory of God resides, that they could live there, but they would rather go back home where the place that they know, where all their stuff is, where their family is, not realizing that where they were planning on moving or could move to would be the this real estate would become the most fought-over piece of ground on the face of planet Earth. Talking about Jerusalem. But, but think about it this way. They counted the cost, and they thought the cost would be too much for them personally to move into this place. Because if they moved into the city, they may have to go home and uproot their lives. They may have to leave some of their family behind in whatever village they came from. They may have to find a new career inside this city to support themselves. Long story short, it's going to cost them to live in Jerusalem. Maybe it wouldn't be as nice. Maybe the little places they built weren't as fancy and comfortable as whatever home they had left out in the other villages that they come from. But that's all okay, right? Because, I mean, God wants us to be comfortable, doesn't he? He never asked us to leave anything behind or leave anyone behind or give sacrificially to his plan and his purpose. <laughs> God wouldn't do that, would he? I don't know. Let's look at Luke 14. Just a few thoughts. Luke 14 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Skip down to verse 33. It says, In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions. We're going to have us a renouncing here after a while. Y'all don't seem too excited about that. He cannot be my disciple. God himself said that. Jesus said that. Salvation is free, isn't it? 
The price for your salvation has been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. But do you realize that following him after that costs you? This is not a very popular message these days. It should cost you anyway. If, if following God does not cost you something, let me just be real blunt. You may not be following him. You may be following a false God that you've made up in your mind that keeps you comfortable. An idol that keeps you happy and that does not make you holy. A real commitment to Jesus is costly. You don't believe me, just take the apostles' word for it. Yeah, they got to walk on water. They got to see thousands of people get saved. They got to see miracles happen. But you know what happened to them? They were beheaded. They were crucified upside down. They were <laughs> thrown off of temples. They were beat to death. They were boiled alive in hot oil. That don't sound very comfortable to me. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, preacher, are you trying to tell me that God wants me to be uncomfortable all the time, that he never wants me to enjoy life, he never wants me to have anything nice? No, I'm telling you the exact opposite. God wants you to get the absolute most out of this life. But God knows the only way that you're ever going to do that is by finding ultimate satisfaction in him. So what does God want from you? God don't want anything from you. What do you have you could give him? <laughs> I mean, really. Here's what God wants. God wants you. Just you. He wants your love. He wants you to know him. To have a relationship with him. He, 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 he loves you first. And the only thing he wants in return is your love. Because God knows what's best for us. How many believes that? Sometimes we question it. But God knows what's best for us. And he knows that the only way that you can ever find real satisfaction with this life is to be satisfied most in him. We tend to look at other people. And we think, man, they've got it so nice. Look at that. They're sinning and they don't go to church. Man, look how happy they are. Things aren't always what they appear from the outside. You don't see the inner turmoil within that person because their heart is torn because there is no satisfaction apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't see the marital fights that take place behind closed doors when on the outside everything looks like a big fairy tale. God knows that your life will be awesome when it's centered on Him. It, Jesus, it's why He could summarize the entire law up into one single verb, which was what? Love. He said, you love God, you love your neighbor. 
Everything else falls into that. And when you love God with everything in you, let me tell you, when you love God the way that God wants you to love him, all these other distractions that's in your life and that's in the world, they, it's easy to let all of that go. Because when you love him with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and you love God with every ounce of everything in you, all you want to do, really, at the end of the day, is make God happy. And you can set aside all this other stuff because you know what you're doing pleases your father. Made me wonder. My wife just texted me while I'm preaching and said, quit preaching on me. funny (laughs) but when you love God like that you find joy in giving sacrificially you find joy in going out when it's 95 degrees and riding 120 miles all day long and beating on doors you know until yesterday I had never been dog bitten (laughs) first time for everything I had also never, <laughs> I got a feeling you'll see this video, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I had also never used an outhouse on top of a mountain labeled cowgirls either. <laughs> but I consider it all joy, as James says, <laughs> because it brings a smile to God's face. <laughs> now, all this story kind of made me wonder as I was studying this week. I was like, God, you know, we got four verses here, and the rest of it's a list of names. But I know because your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, these are here for a reason. It don't make no sense to me. Help me understand what's taking place here. And so I wondered, you know, they cast lots to see who would stay in the city. So basically they left it up to God to determine Who's going to leave everything behind and move into Jerusalem and resettle this place? And I wondered, what kind of people would God choose to move into his holy city? And you go through this list of names in Nehemiah, and Lord knows we we don't have the time or energy to try to get through all of them. But I'll share a few with you. You go down through this list, and you come across names like Athaliah. Nobody knows who Athaliah really is. But back in the old days, when a Hebrew child was named, their name always had a meaning behind it. And you study what some of these names, just the name means. For example, Athaliah means God is exalted. Which tells me the person that's truly committed to God to the point of giving up their own personal comfort is the person that lives a life that exalts almighty God in everything that they do their life isn't about their name and their glory and and all their wonderful comforts of life but the glory of God then you go and you find this guy named Maaseiah isn't that a cool name Maaseiah which means the work of the Lord and I think you know in our little part of the world our American dream says what you work, 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 work until someday you got enough money and stuff to retire so you can move to the beach and collect seashells until you die. What a wasted life. 
But the person that's committed to God foregoes all these creature comforts and they work for the Lord. They do the work of God. They don't try to earn their way to heaven because they're just so saved that just good stuff comes out of them. You ever met somebody like that? They're just so saved that they're just keep doing good things and they're just a pleasure to be around. Then you find this person on down in the list. And I love this one. Joel. The name Joel means Yahweh is God. We need some Joels today in our church and in our communities. This is the person that stands up for the Lord. A few weeks we'll say this is the person that's unashamed of the gospel. When there's an attack on the truth, when there's an attack on God's word, they stand firm. Even when it means that's going to cost them a little bit. And I tell you, it's starting to cost people to stand up for the word of God, even in our own society let alone around the world. Here's a little something I learned here the past couple weeks. I did not know this, but there is an awakening taking place in the heart of the Middle East. In the nation of Iran, the most unlikely place on the planet for people to come to Christ, the most unlikely people to come to Christ, there is a spiritual great awakening taking place. And there was a, a couple that had become Christians there, and they got the opportunity to leave Iran and move to the United States. I mean, who wouldn't take that deal, right? They come to the United States, and they're only here for a few months, and they realize, ooh, sure is nice here. Sure is comfortable here, but there's, there's something missing. And here's what the wife told the husband, and I quote, she said, there is a satanic lullaby here. <laughs> All the Christians are sleepy. And I'm starting to feel sleepy. They literally packed their stuff and moved back to Iran. Now you see what that's saying. That's, they, they felt that their faith... Mm, they felt that their faith was more vulnerable here in the comforts of the United States than it would be under the persecution in Iran. God help us get real about our faith. Then you find the Judas. Judah literally means let God be praised. And I think this is the kind of people that give God the credit for everything. You know, there's some people that do some really awesome stuff. And you can't give them credit for it. They say, no, man, God did that. God blessed it, you know. That's what the Judas are like. Let God be praised. It ain't, it ain't about me. It ain't about look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Judah will say, let God receive the glory for all of it. And the last one is the Zabdiel. If, you, if you're expecting this would be a great name for a child, Zabdiel. <laughs> Zabdiel Shields. That's a, I can see that. But this is where it all starts, man. <laughs> Get another text here shortly, won't we? <laughs> Zabdiel literally means God is given. God is given. This is where generosity starts, is with this type of attitude. It's when we understand that it all belongs to God. Everything that there ever has been and ever will be it was created by God. And it was made uh, not only by Him, but really it's for him it's all for his glory and belongs to him and, and i know it's easy to think that 
especially here, and we work hard, and we get paid good, and we think, man, I, I've earned this. I've earned what I got. I deserve it. Really? It's God's anyway. He blesses us greatly, but not to squander what he's given us. We're supposed to be good stewards of all of those blessings. And you go on down through the list, and I'll tell you, there's a thousand lessons in all of those names that we tend to skip over. But the point is this. Those are the kind of people that God wanted in his city. Those are the kind of people that God knew would be more committed, even above their comfort. So this morning, my question is this. Just like Phil Robertson said, what about you? What about you? How committed are you? How committed to your faith, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, are you? Now, we're planning on doing some pretty big things here at Rock House Baptist Church, and I'm really excited about it. And I hope, I hope you are too. But I'm telling you, it's, it's going to take a big commitment from our church to do the things that we believe God wants us to do. But more than that, even more than that, are you committed in the little things? Are you committed to Him when you go to work? Kids, are you committed to Him when you go to school? Are you committed enough to get up out of the bed on Sunday morning and go to church and worship with the people of God? Y'all thought I slept in this morning, but I didn't. Comfortable versus committed. That's the difference between a disciple and a convert. And I'll leave you with a quote from one of the leaders in the Iranian church that said this. He said, disciples forsake the world and they cling to Jesus until he comes. And he's coming. Converts don't. Disciples are not engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose it to choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. So folks, let's be disciples. Let's make disciples as Jesus commanded us to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let's be more committed. Let's be sold out for Jesus. Let's be unashamed of the gospel. And watch what God does with some people like that. Stand together as we pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for even those parts of your word that we don't know how to understand, that we tend to skip over. God, I thank you that there's a lesson in those little names like Zabdiel and Maasai. God, I thank you that you had a plan for their lives, just like you've got a plan for all of our lives here. And Father, this morning... I'm asking you to show us where it is that we're too comfortable. Because we are, Lord. We don't always give till it hurts. We don't always step out unashamedly and share Jesus like we should. And God, honestly, that's something that we need to repent from this morning. 
And God, I pray that your spirit would guide us. God, I pray that you draw us closer to you. God, if there's someone here this morning or someone watching online that does not know you, God, I pray that today you would save them. Lord, I pray that you would change lives. And God, I pray that you would help our church. God, as we go into the future and we try to follow this plan, this vision that you have for us, God, that we will be absolutely sold out for you. Totally committed and all in. God, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for bringing us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in today. And remember, the greatest decision that you could ever make is to place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and begin a personal relationship with Him. Again, thanks for listening. God bless.